So welcome all to this first session of a new seminar series on political thought at which we'll have speakers working on the Middle East and Islam more broadly. And we are really delighted, Osama Al-Azmi and myself, Faisal Devji, to welcome our first two speakers, Lisa Alexandrin from the University of Manitoba and Hussein Yilmaz from George Mason. And I just want to, before handing over to Osama, to introduce the speakers properly, I just want to go through the procedure. So each speaker will be speaking for 20 minutes and we'll have back-to-back presentations, followed by half an hour of Q&A. The Q&A will be written, that is to say, if you have questions, please do write them in the question box and Osama or I will read them out. If you don't wish your name to be read out, use the anonymous function as these questions will be recorded along with the rest of the session and put online. And please do ask questions when they occur to you in the course of these talks so that they don't all pile up towards the end and then sadly we'll have to miss a number of them. So with that, let me hand over to Osama. Thank you so much, Faisal. And it's really a, a great honor for me to be able to host two wonderful speakers from across the Atlantic. And this is one of the sort of more positive aspects of our difficult, challenging couple of years that we've experienced, that we can have people beaming in from any part of the world. And I'm sure many of those attending are also beaming in from other parts of the world. So we welcome you all as well. I'd like to just briefly actually introduce Elizabeth Alexandrin, Lisa. Before I'll introduce Hussein briefly, Hussein, I'll be introducing you in greater detail just before you give your part of the presentation. So Elizabeth Alexandrin is a scholar based at the University of Manitoba's Department of Religion, where she's been based since 2005. She obtained her PhD at McGill University, and she is, correct me if I'm wrong, because some of this may become a bit dated by now, but it says on your faculty profile that your current book project focuses on dreaming and sleeping in 13th to 14th century Muslim societies, with a particular focus on Kubrabi Sufis, uh, Sufi texts, medical treatises, and hagiographical works. Very different to what you're going to be talking about today, but also fascinating. As part of this project on medieval Sufism in Iran, Anatolia, and Central Asia, you're also co-editing a book with P. Balanfat, of Galatasaray University, and her recent book on Walaya in the Fatimid Ismaili tradition has been published by uh, the State University of New York Press in 2017. And that's basically one of the components of what you'll be talking about today, along with, uh, and, and we're delighted to be able to have a peek at your very latest cutting edge research, you're going to be sort of branching beyond it. So your lecture title is Empire of the End Time. Fatimid sovereignties in the 4th century after Hijra, equivalent to the 11th century CE. So with that, I'd like to welcome you to take the hot seat, as it were. (laughs) Yes, thank you so much for giving me this opportunity to share some thoughts and some of the work that I've done in the past, as well as some of the work that I've revisited recently. So this study is interested in how apocalyptic imaginaries establish borderlines as it reconsiders how Abu Yaqub Sijistani's discussions of the end time resisted the messianic sovereignties implicit in 10th century Fatimid Ismaili thought. In particular, as he introduces a Ka'imology without specific reference to the Ismaili Imam, 
To explore these questions, this study gives careful consideration to apocalyptic imaginaries in calibrated political and soteriological landscapes where the bodies of some will still be predicated as other monstrous and strange. Attention will be paid to specific passages from Sigistani's works to situate his theory of the Barzakh, where the Barzakh as an intermediary borderline is correlated to the cyclical resurrection of the soul and the perfection of the human form. What informs Sigistani's understanding of the apocalyptic imaginary is his conception of the Ka'im as a process of istishfaf or rendering transparent the human form as the nafsakia, the pure soul, the coded symbolism of a messianism that questions time's timeline, tells us much about the political and horizon event of the cotton's rising. As the study argues in Sijistani's subtle staging of Fatimid Ismaili doctrines of messianism and divine guidance, the apocalyptic plotline of returning to an original unity is suspended, as well as the images of the end times cataclysmic events are displaced. So the backstory, in texts, in terms of the post-Kirmanian 11th century Ismaili tradition, as I call it, demonstrate a concerted interest in developing the function of the Imam and the Dawah within the sphere of Walaya. In building the empire of the Mahdi, the Fatimids extended the dominion of their sovereignty to incorporate the end time and the afterlife. Was this because, as Delilo states, everybody wants to own the end of the world? For the Fatimids, their sovereignty over the end time was not to be understood merely as a truth claim, but as the requirement of joining together religio-political governance with uncovering the esoteric and manifesting the Ka'im. From the late 10th century onward, the Fatimid Dawah serves as the catalyst for human perfection, where the esoteric knowledge of the Ka'im remains safeguarded, rather than open to everyone. In post-Kirmanian Ismaili texts, this implementation of hierarchical concerns bears foremost on the definition of the human being, that is the realm of the human being's sovereignty. For example, in the magnum opus of the 11th century Al-Majalis Al-Mu'ayyadiyah, Al-Mu'ayyad Fidina Shirazi's treatment of the human being's potential perfection uncovers a highly structured system that speaks to the context of the philosophical and theological responses to the Fatimids' politico-esoteric leadership. Conceptually, it alludes to the ways by which the hidden knowledge of the Ka'an as the seal of Walaya is restricted within the ranks of religion, the Hudud al-Din, as well as the Dawah. So in my earlier work situating specific texts and Ismaili authors historically, I underscored how the mid 11th century Fatimid Ismaili Dawah concerted its efforts to signal its politico-esoteric sovereignty and to make public and affirm publicly through consolidated esoteric teachings, how the Fatimid Caliph Imams were the heirs of Walaya. The Fatimid Dawah under the guidance of Al-Mu'ayyad and the ruling elite introduced teachings on Walaya in particular to consolidate the Fatimid claim to the caliphate as an imamate. The mid 11th century Fatimid Dawah broadened the context in which Walaya as a pillar of practice functioned through setting the parameters of individual initiatory experience within the cumulative soteriological and eschatological province of the Ka'im. That is the apocalyptic spacing of the cycles of the prophets and the imams that mark the completion of Walaya. By the mid 11th century, 
The Ka'im as the seal of forms, the seal of imams, and another creation acquires multiple significations and registers of meaning in terms of measuring prophetic history and its associated apocalyptic scales and valences. In the 11th century consolidation of Dawah teachings, there is a shift towards the adab and the ethics of obedience and reliance on the imam, as well as the Dawah for salvation and redemption of the body politic. The move towards an Ismaili spiritual ethics paralleled syntaxic rereadings and revisions of Sajistani's prophetic anthropology, what Michael Brett once termed the rehabilitation and re-inclusion of Sijistani's often controversial teachings and concepts, which in my work, uh, as I considered it earlier, um, I approached through studying exactly how this compilation of Dawah teachings took place in the Majalis and how this occurred at a time historically when the Fatimid ruling elite, ruling elite in particular struggled to maintain its sovereignty. So my presentation today is taking another look through the rearview mirror, as it were, at how apocalyptic imaginaries inscribe borderlines. What is suggested by the apocalyptic as grounded in Quranic discourses and interpretations? How did the extensive Ismaili lexicon of resurrection and kaimology situate apocalyptic imaginaries in this expected future to come? Sajistani's discussions of the end time resisted the messianic sovereignties implicit in 10th century Fatimid Ismaili thought, in particular as he introduces this kaimology without specific reference to the Ismaili Imam, as I mentioned before. At the end of time, the reversal, the i.e. the turning over of apocalyptic destruction surfaces as a major theme in Sajistani's works. So we have a couple of questions. What will the coded symbolism of a messianism that questions times, timeline in particular, tell us about the political and historical horizon event of the Ka'im's rising, particularly in Sajistani's works. What will it tell us about the body politic? Introducing apocalyptic imaginaries from medieval Ismaili works contributes in significant ways to scholarship for showing the malleability of messianisms between concepts and texts in Muslim societies beyond Orientalist and Neo-Orientalist frameworks. So turning to Sajistani's works in particular, Rasalat al-Bahra, Kashful Mahjub and Kitab al-Makalid, um, where he presents his ideas on the Barzakh, many of these ideas jolt conventionality but lend familiarity in reading the Quran and Islamic traditions. The Barzakh occurring three times in Quran 23 verses 99-100 is an intermediary borderline or the thinnest line of separation, which is correlated in Sajistani's works to the cyclical arising qua resurrection of the soul and the human form's perfection. What is key to Sajistani's understanding of the apocalyptic imaginary is his conception of the Ka'im as a process of istishfaf, or rendering transparent the human form as the pure soul, nafsakia, ontologically mirroring transmigration of souls, i.e. metempsychosis, tanasoch, Sajistani makes the case that soul's remembrance is erased and soul's potential downward descent into other forms. In fact, with the cyclical timelines of resurrection and transmigration, potentially a collective generation of soul's remembrance is effaced. 
Thus, as this study is going to argue, and Sijastani's subtle take on Ismaili doctrines of messianism, the body politic and divine guidance, this apocalyptic plotline of returning to an original unity is held in suspension. And as readers of Sijastani, we might also be held in suspense and left with questions. The images of the end times violence and destruction are displaced through temporal reversals. The souls of some remain monstrous and strange, Distinct others usher in a new creation as the final abode of pure knowledge embodied by humanity under no law. So while some issues will be receiving attention in what follows, others necessarily are going to remain unresolved at the end of this particular presentation. And I underscore here in particular, at the advent of Fatimid imperial sovereignty, what was Sijistani's position on the politics of the identity of the Ka'in? So in terms of the historical context and development of Ismaili doctrines, Sijistani's works were not always in strict accordance with Fatimid understandings of interpretive authority. Fatimid legitimacy is by no means the central concern of his works. Along with the central themes of Ba'ath and Inbiaf, Sijistani's works are concerned with the means by which the individual soul locates and obtains the complete understanding of revelation, purified of the elements of the physical world subject to generation and corruption. While some works like Kitab al-Yanabi highlight the distinctions between the interpretive process of Tawil and knowledge bestowed through divine support Ta'id, others such as Bahra and Iftikhar work with questions related to resurrection and the aforementioned istishfaf. In these regards, the central theme of both, which can be translated loosely as arising, and the time before as well as after resurrection, shift from the linear to the cyclical and the prismatic, remaining implicit on the figure of the cotton. So turning now to one of the major works, the sixth theme in Risalat al-Bahara is both. Resurrection pertains to the soul. Soul is to be understood as the locus out of which arise all of the conditions and manifestations of end time phenomena. That is the natural phenomena that serve as signs and indications of the events preceding the final resurrection. So turning to Sijistani's use of this particular term and thinking about his apocalyptic imaginaries, we have the verbal form istashafa, Yastashifu, lifting or raising of darkness. We can note if we look at other works from a little bit before Sijistani and after Sijistani, for example, in the works of Ibn Sina, Istashifa pertains not only to questions surrounding soul at the time of resurrection, but a range of other issues such as optics and eschatology. It can be suggested here that Ibn Sina defines a discourse of imaginal resurrection and eschatology grounded in an understanding of faculties and the forms of soul's attachment to the body, with particular attention to rational soul's potential for attachment to the celestial spheres. This term related to imaginal potentiality, complicates what Ibn Sina presents and results in multiple questions and refutations on the parts of later thinkers. Briefly stated, Ibn Sina worked with a shared concern on resurrection to argue that it pertains to soul, as is seen in the fourth and fifth chapters of Athawiyah, in particular, suggesting that there are two categories of soul or self, 
in experiencing death and resurrection. Wahmi thus characterizes inner faculties, inner content, as well as forms of representation, definitions which carry over to the works of Ismaili authors and other Muslim thinkers. According to Ibn Sina, two categories of soul or self may be demarcated in terms of experiencing death and resurrection. How soul has perfected itself in bodily form and in the temporal world determines resurrection and afterlife experiences. Sijistani's works present an ordering of movement in time that is imaginal, wahmi, wahmiya, especially for considerations of bath, arising, or resurrection, with strong correlations to what Tariq Jafar proposed originally as Ibn Sina's imaginal eschatology on the basis of his study of Atawiyah. Consequently, reading between these terms and concepts supports further how the process of istishfaf in minor and major cycles, according to Ismaili authors like Sijistani, culminate in nafsakiya. This interest in subtle body arguments, which Ismaili authors understood to have been introduced in these works of Ibn Sina, based on Thabit ibn Qura, culminate in a range of meanings as to soul, conceptions of soul, and individual soul, qua collective soul, arising as anafsa zakiya, the pure soul. Therefore, both and inbiyath are key to understanding the continuous motion of Sijistani's epistemological frameworks. From the duality and doubleness of universal soul and intellect descends the human form as does ta'id and ta'lim. The processes of both and inbiyath central to Sijistani's works bridge creation and resurrection. So Sijistani's engagement in theological metaphysics and ontology stages the form of the human being at the center of the spiritual world, as well as between two realms. So the natural and the spiritual and the individual souls linked to bodies perform istishfaf, this gradual rendering transparent of all things. All these things will be rendered transparent in the world of soul. And as suggested by Bustan Hirji, soul world is within the form of the human being. It is the form that renders all forms natural or soul-related transparent. How the human form affects the soul and is entailed in the sphere is as follows. So I'm going to give a quote of Bahara, and then I'm going to turn to some other points, so keep everything going on time here. This is a very interesting quote from Bahara. If souls render the form of the sphere and its bodies transparent, well, they are in a condition where the marks of nature have mastery over them. Envy, ruination, and terrifying events are produced, which are the causes of perdition and destruction. But if souls render transparent the form of the sphere and all of its bodies and luminous stars and conditions where emanations of the intellect have mastery over them, then from their influences, good fortune, divinely granted talents and beings who bring advantage and nobility are produced. So we have many different arguments that are presented in Bahara in particular, which point to how the end time is in fact the culmination of this process of rendering transparent that occurs through the vehicle of nafsakiya, the pure soul, and in the completion of the human form, arising as the ka'im rather than positing the destruction and the violence of the end time. In other words, the raising of the Kaim represents a reversal of destruction. In a very 
prismatic fashion. Passages from Kash, Bahara, and Iftikhar give way to how Sijistani explicates this process as prismatic on all levels. And with respect to the major and minor cycles of ascent and descent that pertain to both individual and universal soul. So just very briefly, in terms of thinking about other types of scholarship that can be completed, there's a lot um, that can be done in terms of thinking about the arguments presented by Ibn Sina and Sajistani on both resurrection and this more controversial question of transmigration of souls, which both focus in many different ways on this idea of the Barzakh as the line of demarcation that separates souls which is then erased with the vehicle of the pure soul completing the human form at the end of time. So in conclusion, Sijistani works with the interpretation of set verses and chapters from the Quran as well as Islamic traditions, from which many scholars inferred the events prior to the end time will be cataclysmic, destructive, and apocalyptic. Rather presenting in the majority of his works a critical exposition on a, shall we say, neo-Platonizing exercise of soul, Sijistani maintains instead that in temporal suspensions, bridging creation and resurrection, individual souls qua the human form purifies soul world, redeeming universal soul of its traces and multiplicities in its return to the abode of God's oneness and framing an esoteric sovereignty at the end time. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Lisa. Really sort of a fascinating journey through the works of one of the most important Ismaili philosophers and Neoplatonists, I suppose, of the Islamic tradition. I'm a little conscious of time, but you've been impeccable in your timing. I'm going to now introduce Hossein Yilmaz. And for people who have questions for Lisa, please do bear in mind we're going to take questions collectively at the end of this. And please do note down your questions and type them in in the Q&A as they occur to you. And, and we'll pick them up towards the end. So Hussein Yilmaz, in, in some respects, is looking at a comparable sort of dimension of the caliphate in the Sunni tradition, a few miles north, shall we say, in the Ottoman realms. So he holds a PhD in history and Middle Eastern studies from Harvard University. And his research interests focus on the early modern Middle East, including political thought, geographic imaginaries, social movements, and cultural history. His most recent publications include The Eastern Question and the Ottoman Empire, the genesis of the Near and Middle East in the 19th century. And in a sense, today's discussion is going to look at his latest book, published in 2018 with Princeton University Press. It is entitled Caliphate Redefined, the Mystical Turn in Ottoman Political Thought. And uh, this really is the first comprehensive study of pre-modern Ottoman political thought. So with that, Hussein, I'd like to introduce your uh, lecture title, which is The Ottomans and the Questions of the Caliphate, which really seems to be addressed directly by your book. And so the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Osama and uh, Faisal and all others who made this uh, meeting happen. I'm very happy to be here. And this is, although the book is published, still an ongoing project. I'm still continuing to unpack some of the major issue I dealt with in the book. And in this talk, I'd like to highlight some of those issues for to talk about those in the Q&A session. So I titled the talk as the question of the caliphate because it's not a straightforward history of the caliphate as we have been accustomed to think of the caliphate as a juristic exposition of authority. 
in Muslim society. So in this talk, I will emphasize from the beginning that when I talk about the caliphate, I'm referring specifically to the Sufistic conception of the caliphate and the fact that the Ottomans themselves, as rulers and the dynasty and ruling elite, learned of the caliphate through their exposure to the Sufism. And to do that, I'll first talk about the first context uh, and then major turning points along the road, and then how this caliphate uh, sort of became part of the imperial self-identification in the middle of the 16th century. So we are talking about the origins of the Ottoman Empire in Western Anatolia, where we can think of two major orders. One was the Abbasid slash Mongol order in the political order, in which the Abbasid order was, despite the collapse of the empire, itself was slowly waning because of the influence of the Mamluk state over Anatolia. The Abbasid order was still quite feelable among the local uh, small dynasties. And the second order was the spiritual order exerted by a variety of Sufi orders, often in clash with temporal rulers in Western Anatolia, where we speak of almost, uh, depends on the uh, precise date, from 10 to 20 different small dynasties competing for power. And here we see three major groups of Sufis. One is Abdalan, who are pastoral, mostly operating in the countryside, in most cases originating from Central Asian forms of Sufism, of whose the prime language was Turkish, uh, or the Turkic, let's say, uh, Western Turkish of the time. And they were mostly advocating illiteracy, literally saying illiteracy. Uh, but what they meant by this, uh, an epistemological autonomy from the written transmission of knowledge, basically the defiance of uh, the authority of ulama, and they claim that they are exposed to and they have access to the truth through their own language and spiritual asceticism and sophistication. So illiteracy for them was not a deficiency, but sort of pride, a sort of a distinction. And then second group was urban Sufis, of which the most important was the Mevlevis, of course, who originated from Anatolia. And they were expanding mostly among urban merchants and artisan groups, as well as uh, bureaucrats and higher levels of those ruling dynasties. And the third group was Ahis. Uh, Ahis were originated from the medieval groups of Fitian. They had uh, sort of uh, some chivalric ethos in themselves as well. And all these groups were quite autonomous onto themselves uh, to the extent that, for example, in the midst of this political vacuum, Ahis for a while ruled Ankara, the so-called Ahi Republic, in which there was no ruler, temporal ruler per se, of one of the uh, final representatives of that autonomy was Haji Bayram Veli, which the Ottomans made peace in the beginning of the 15th century. So they basically ruled the city by themselves, of which we don't know much, by the way. But these all indicate that these Sufi groups were quite autonomous, First of all, in the midst of this political fragmentation and decentralization, there was no solid imperial order. Even the Mongol order was quite loose in Western Anatolia 
at the time. And secondly, because of their spiritual inclinations and visions of authority, which I'll come in a short while, we see in their hagiographies, for example, they adopted royal titles to begin with. Uh, so every one of them would be known as hunkars, sultans, khalifas, and maliks, and whatnot. So their royal titulature was a lot more elaborate than those competing local rulers, such as the Ottomans, Germianis, or Aydinovas, or Hamitovas, etc. And with that, they meant it. They meant that they have temporal power as well, with a difference from what actual temporal rulers understood from temporal. And that was temporal ruler rule uh, for them was a, a factor uh, of their spiritual authority. Uh, so they gained their spiritual status not from their actual power on the ground, but they claimed that as part of their being chosen in the spiritual realm in ways uh, which Elizabeth elaborated. Not so different in that regard from the medieval Fatima Ismaili proclamations, uh, only in more simplified vocabulary, I would say. We don't still see this depthness in the 14th century Anatolia yet. Nevertheless, they consider themselves legitimate and authorities on both grounds, spiritual and temporal, that put them in exact clash with the actual rulers, again, referring to their hagiographies, either Bektashi hagiographies or Ahi hagiographies or those of the Mevlevis, we see numerous encounters between those sovereign dervishes and temporal rulers, in which case the temporal rulers were made in hagiographies, acknowledging the ultimate absolute authority of the Sufi dervish and being identified as their temporal arms, their executive arms, their commander of Ghazis, for example, receiving those titles from that spiritual authority. And when we see the Ottomans uh, specifically, of course, they were quite an, a neglected, ignored, one of the smallest principalities out there. We see certain transformations that the Ottomans went through to claim their presence in the region. One was their marriage with uh, the Osman's marriage with the daughter of one of the most prominent Sufi leaders in the region, which symbolized actually the convergence of temporal and uh, spiritual order authority in the persona of Osman. And secondly, they made a very good use of the political and Sufistic competition in the region. As I said in the beginning, there was still the Mongol and Abbasid rulers quite present there. So Orhans, the second ruler, mints a coin. In the back, it mentions the name of the Abbasid caliph who was dead for uh, about a century, which claims politically that he is still operating within the sovereign order of the Abbasids, which at the time was represented by the Mamluks, of course. In the meantime, he also adopts the title of Khan. And here it's very important how actually his claims of sovereignty negotiated in this context. We see that there are two types of uh, manifesting sovereignty or authority or political leadership. One was the question of legitimacy and the other one was sovereignty, namely 
claim to the territory. It's basically a real estate problem, in a sense. So for the second, they would use uh, the same vocabulary as the Sufi leaders, exact same vocabulary. So Ottoman ruler adopted names as Sultan, Malik, Ghazi, Hunkar, Hudawandigar, whatever is available from the historical literature or in currency at the time. On the other hand, they had their sovereign titles. So Sultan Malik and the others were just describing their form of rulership. It's for their legitimacy. For their sovereignty, they use beg, the Turkic word beg, which means in their, under their rule, within their territory, no one else could actually use that title. Sultan, everybody uses. Rumi calls himself Hunkar Sultan, everything. But Rumi could not call himself Beg. It is an exclusive right to the territory. Now the Ottomans, as they, as they expanded, uh, they adopted the Han title, another secular, quote-unquote, which has nothing to do with Islamic tradition, and complete uh, claim of territorial independence. A third word was Shah, and that's it. They all formed pretty much in the first century of the Ottomans. And to the end, they stuck with these three claims of sovereignty. Even the last Ottoman caliphs, Wahidatin or Abdul Hamid, you could see one page long descriptive titulature for his legitimacy, ruler of the one fourth of the world, Khalifa Zamin, et cetera, et cetera. It always ends with Abdul Hamid Khan. And before, of course, Suleiman Khan, Selim Khan, et cetera, or Shah. So these sovereign titles were never negotiated by the temporal rulers. It was always a matter of clash if there is a claimant uh, for that title. The competition was for the legitimacy in the spiritual space uh, for other titles. The most important, of course, was the caliphate. And to do that, the Ottomans learned of the caliphate from the Sufi language, from Sufi claimants, because they were the first who claimed that. So Haji Bektash, uh, for example, or Rumi and others, first and foremost known as Khalifas. And they described their caliphates as God's absolute wise regency on earth. They elaborated them uh, with other vocabularies, such as Qutb, the pillar, the axis uh, of the world, or Gauss, the assist, uh, the helper of all uh, humanity, uh, etc. Uh, but the key word in Sufi spiritual authority was the caliphate. And the Ottomans took that caliphate before they knew anything about the juristic notions of the caliphate, which they learned before. The early Ottoman sultans, at least for the first century, in all likelihood, because I'm saying in likelihood, we have no evidence otherwise, they were illiterate. They were not educated. Only after the Battle of Ankara, we see among the Ottoman sultans some interest in learning because they started to educate their princes. Uh, so that we know. So they were only slowly being exposed to learn Islam. Uh, much of what they knew was learned from, from the environment, let's say, in the region. But in the meantime, uh, we see that institutions of uh, learning and spirituality were expanding along with and despite the Ottoman rule. 
uh, specifically I mean madrasas and zawiyas, more so zawiyas. We're expanding with no control, of course. They were on their own and they actually reached, for example, to the Balkans way before the Ottomans crossed the Dardanelles. And then madrasas, the Ottomans found their own madrasas and they, as they expanded, uh, took over Byzantine cities, they built their own madrasas. And here it's important that uh, a very important feature of Ottoman madrasa arises. They appoint uh, spiritually non-denominational, Sufistic-minded ulama as mudarrises. The best known, of course, was Dawud al-Khayseri, who was a disciple of Ibn Arabi. Most of his books are on Sufism, but he was a mudarris of the first Ottoman madrasa. And the first, uh, reportedly, as said by the Ottoman sources, uh, the Sheikh Hulistan, the chief judge, the chief mufti uh, of the Ottoman Empire was Mullah Fanari. Again, most of his books are on Sufism, and he was a distant disciple of uh, Ibn Arabi as well. In the meantime, the Ottoman sultans maintained a very close relationship with Sufi leaders. In the first century, those Sufi leaders were Abdalan, the pastoral Sufis in the countryside, because the Ottoman uh, rulers were themselves coming uh, from nomadic pastoral origin. So we see there a very natural alliance versus urban uh, Sufis. Mevlevis were out of Ottoman space for more than a century. They were not let in by the Ottoman rulers or other Abdalan Sufis who were competing against them. Only after the Battle of Ankara uh, and the major rebellion carried out by Sheikh Bedreddin, again, another interesting figure, uh, a Sufi-minded ulama, alim, uh, a scholar, who was adopted as chief chief judge by one of the competing Ottoman princes after the Battle of Ankara. So due to growing presence of Sufis and power to counter that, the Ottomans actually invited other Sufi groups into their cities. The most important of them was, of course, the Mevlevis. The first Mevlevi lodge was opened during the reign of Murat II in 1420s in Edirne. Before that, they were operating in all parts of Anatolia, but not Ottoman territories. In the meantime, the Ottomans themselves maintained a very close association of Sufi leaders, which is well reflected in those hagiographies, and an alliance uh, which worked both ways because the Ottoman rulers themselves acquired legitimacy in the eyes of this Sufistic base through their close association with these Sufi leaders. And those Sufi leaders also claimed and maintained their own vision of legitimacy. There is one story which is repeated in a variety of hagiographies, almost verbatim. So it is, I don't know, either happened once and repeated, uh, adopted by others, or simply fabricated. We see that in the geography of Eshrafol Rumi or Akshem Settin, for example, the two very important Sufis of 15th century, both of them say that Mehmed II, the conqueror of uh, Constantinople, uh, actually came to their threshold and then begged the sheikh, saying that he is the ultimate authority and they should give up all these worldly riches and powers, such, much like uh, Ibrahim Adham, and then just serve to the sheikh. But the sheikh says, no, your task is to maintain the order uh, of the temporal world. So the alliance works both ways. So 
uh, in the geography, it's complete peaceful encounters. We have more violent encounters as well, because not every Sufi group was happy with the administration of the Ottoman rule at the time. In the 15th century, Ottoman Baba, uh, who was an Abdalan uh, Sufi sheikh, his geography gives uh, so many other encounters in which uh, Mehmet II was chastised, reprimanded, punished for his failure to acknowledge the proper authority of Ottoman Baba. Similar encounters we see Mevlevi geographies too in their encounters with the Seljuk rulers. But here in this context, while the Ottoman sultans were maintaining their close association with the sheikhs, their own madrasa graduates, their own scholars who have a strong background in Sufism, plus their invitation and employment of a stream of Sufistic-minded scholars from the East, such as Musannifek Bistami, in their court, started to expose Ottoman rulership in exclusively Sufistic terms, which would be acceptable for a Sufi mind in Ottoman realms. So when we come to the 16th century, the Ottoman rule actually faced two major almost existential threats in which uh, they resorted to sophistic vocabulary and worldview even more. One was um, their clashes with the Mamluks in the South, and then their clashes with the Safavids. Especially uh, the Safavid conflict was very threatening for the Ottomans because it's a Sufi house turned into an actual dynasty. And they had a claim in Ottoman territories as well, especially Ottoman rural areas whose language was Turkish, Shahid Ismail's poetry uh, simply captivated, enchanted that space. So in that context, Ibn Arabi, for example, immediately rehabilitated. There was uh, ongoing critique of or criticism of Ibn Arabi among jurists. Uh, now we see a number of treatises were written about Ibn Arabi and his, his futuristic uh, news about the coming of the uh, Ottomans, etc. So I'll just extend two minutes, perhaps. I'll recap here how the Ottoman Caliphate came to be understood uh, and manifested in the 16th century. We see six major characteristics of qualities of the notion of the Caliphate as exposed but among the Ottoman ruling elite. One was that the Ottoman ruler and the dynasty was chosen. Uh, so Caliphate is not something to be acquired as we see in juristic literature, there is no bay'ah, no contract. It is to be chosen by divine providence. Secondly, it is dynastic. Uh, it's not individualistic. Again, in juristic theory, the bay'ah or contract is wielded by an individual, but here it is dynastic. It was always the Ottoman house that was consecrated and chosen. Thirdly, the idea of caliphate became hierarchical because it was used almost across the board by the larger Sufi orders in the Ottoman Empire and elsewhere, more elaborate notions of the caliphate were developed, such as Hilafeti uh, Kubra or Hilafeti Uzma, greatest uh, caliphate, uh, which combines a variety of other lesser forms of caliphate. Thirdly, caliphate became a moral paradigm by 
in political thought among the political advisors. So they, for example, developed the notion of Khilafat al-Rahmani, which they argued that caliphate is not just representing or manifestation of God on earth, but it's a manifestation of God's compassion on earth. So unless you endow yourself with that quality, you cannot uh, manifest divine order properly. Uh, so it becomes uh, a moral obligation to, to become a caliph. Uh, and fourthly, it is, or fifthly, it's comprehensive and uh, unified. Also combines the juristic understanding we see in the treatise of Lutzi Pasha, for example. He writes a juristic treatise claiming that the Ottomans are actually imams and caliphs and the Qureshi stipulation in juristic literature does not apply to them because Qureshi meant power and the Ottomans already have power and chosen, etc. But interestingly, he writes his reasoning is juristic, but most of his sources uh, are Sufistic sources. And lastly, which is a strong connection with uh, what Elizabeth just uh, gave us here, it is eschatological. So the Ottoman Caliphate represented by the Devle. Uh, so Devle is the kind of authority, a turn that is given epochal turn, the right to rule. So until the end of times, uh, the, Ottomans, uh, the Ottoman dynasty was to rule. Ibn Isa, uh, for example, uh, uh, a sheikh 1540s, wrote the next 3,000 years of the Ottoman or the world, uh, including the Ottomans. He mentioned all the muftis and Sufi sheikhs and sultans names, including women sultans uh, in the meantime. But that was the idea. It was the end of times. So the Ottoman dynasty was ruling as the final epoch of uh, human beings' time on earth. Ali Dede, uh, Halveti Sheikh, a very elaborate deposition, for example, he argued that based on the scriptures, his symbolic reading of uh, the Quran hadiths argued that there are three major terms in world order. One, Arabs uh, was given that authority. Second, the uh, Fars given that uh, authority. By Farsi means the Abbasids. And the third, it's the time of the Turks, which rules, by the not Turks, the rules, the Ottomans. And that's it. That will take humanity till the end of days. Thank you. Thank you very much. Two wonderful presentations and interestingly linked in unexpected ways, obviously through the apocalyptic, which Hussein has just returned to, but also in a way, I suppose, uh, through these ideas of the dispersal of sovereignties, you know, whether it is what Lisa was talking about, the functionalization, if I might put it that way, of the figure of the Qayyim and the focus on souls, individual souls, or what Hussein was speaking about, the Sufi dispersal of older notions of sovereignty, sultan, et cetera, and their easy availability, and then their sort of uh, uptake again by the early Ottomans. So a lot to think about here. Uh, thank you both very much. For those in the audience, please do write in your questions in the Q&A box. And we, we have one already for Hussein. Uh, let me read that out. This is from Mehdi Askarieh, who asks, would Hussein expand on the tension slash conflict between the religious establishment, ulama, and the Ottoman ruling dynasty and its development through the ages? Thank you very much. Uh, it's a very good question. The tension was basically the ulama who got stuck to the word of the book and the Sufiya who claimed that scriptures were encrypted. 
So for rank and file ulema who studies grammar and logic and etc., God's message uh, could be extracted by rational contemplation, by resorting to nakal, how uh, to convey knowledge. But from a sufficient perspective, it's a complete epistemological approach. It's an encrypted text, and logic, rhetoric, these don't help. You need to be qualified through Tezkiya. You need to be spiritually uh, sophisticated to understand the layers and layers of meanings uh, behind those uh, texts. Uh, so that was the basic uh, point of tension uh, between the Sufiya and the ulama. However, we see two interesting developments took place almost simultaneously. One, an increasing number of learned men just sympathize with sufistic cosmologies. Kutbuddin Shirazi, for example. These astronomers, uh, mathematicians, they found Sufism more enabling, perhaps uh, more emancipating in constructing their own scientific and philosophical universes or understanding of nature, as opposed to the strict juristic writings, which were normative and aiming to standardize uh, understanding and practices across the community, regardless of differences. And uh, so we see this inclination from the learned men. They just became more and more sophisticated in orientation. The reasons, the separate line of discussion. Secondly, the Sufia themselves started to master texts as well. Uh, of course, we have many different strains of uh, Sufism, that pastoral Sufism vehemently continued to reject the learned transmission of authority and maintain their autonomy in that regard. But most strains of Sufism, including Mevlevia, started to master texts and incorporated them into their Zawiya experience. Rumi, for example, by profession, uh, he was a moderate. So in daytime, he would go to the madrasa, teach uh, juristic books, come back to, to his Zawiya and have ecstatic experience. Along the way, in this tension, uh, of course, never waned completely, but controlled by the political intrusion of the Ottoman rulers. So whenever there is uh, certain things that got out of control, um, distort that balance, they intervened. Uh, so we have, for example, in the 16th century, a number of sheikhs hanged on charges of apostasy. We also see that certain jurists were, were distanced from power, such as Chivizade in the 16th century, who was very critical of any kind of sophistic uh, interpretation of texts, and then they were just not promoted. Perhaps the most important clash took place in the 17th century between Sivasis and Kadrizades. Uh, so Kadrizades just promoted that idea of pristine Islam based on strict juristic normative understanding of Islam, whereas Sivasis were still operating in sufistic vocabulary and rituals and piety in Istanbul. The Kadrizades took the upper hand for a while almost terrorized uh, in Istanbul. They started to burn mosques and minarets on charges that they are beat up, uh, their innovations. But at the end, again, Ottoman rulership intervened and restored order. So we see this clash ongoing. I would say maintained, uh, the control and balance maintained by the interference of the Ottoman rulership. Thanks very much. I have a question. I know Osama does as well, but I have a question for you, Lisa even though this is very far from my field of expertise, 
I thought when I was listening to you that I finally understood something, but I might not have understood it at all. And that is the following, that once you, as it were, um, as the Fatimids, you say, did absorb the apocalypse or the end of time within their form of sovereignty or to use an anachronistic term, ideology, then in a way you're almost compelled into a circular or cyclical vision of history and of the universe that can only repeat itself. And that that then might link to the equally compelling argument of metempsychosis or the, you know, the rebirth or reincarnation of souls. And it hadn't occurred to me though those two things were connected up by very strict logic and not just, you know, random influences from the outside, which the scholarship often tells us uh, about. But I wanted to ask in particular about how this, if you will, logic or circular or cyclical logic also might end up doing what you suggested, Jastani argues, which is render the figure of the Qayyam Imam into almost a kind of intellectual hinge so that all the attention seems to be on the souls, which could belong to all kinds of people, at least in your telling of it. You know, right. am I at all near oh, the ballpark this here? This is uh, exactly the, the steps uh, A, B, and C, the, the logical links are, are quite interesting to look at in terms of historical context. And so we have a lot of very good and solid scholarship looking at Ismaili thought primarily as intellectual history in the historical context, um, looking at the, the history of the Fatimid dynasty and nascent empire and imperial presence up until the mid 11th century, we see a number of the different Ismaili authors introducing arguments that essentially destabilize the authority of the Imam Caliph. And so while Sajistani um, in his day and age was not approved in terms of where the Fatimids were in the mid-11th century, they saw his works and his arguments concerning prophetic anthropology to be just what they needed to recatalyze, restart a discussion about sovereignty. And I find it, again, strange, I'm going to use that word, I find it strange to think about this as a type of dominion that extends into end time as well as the afterlife, which we essentially see both Sajistani and Omoyed doing in their different ways and in their different times. But yes, yes, how, how can you have a messianic empire, right? <laughs> One of these questions that I think comes up time and time and again in different scholarship and different fields of research, it's it's very hard to, to maintain that over a period of time in a long duration, so to speak. Yeah, you know, it, it just seemed to me how once you absorb the apocalypse and it's already somehow happened, then it, it's almost like it becomes the principle of movement or dynamism within the whole. Uh, you know, it's... Um, it's fascinating how it then does this kind of work repeatedly. Right, right. So, but the time of apocalypse is is now. It's always now, <laughs> which can be like on a personal level. Um, if you have a, a system of thought, a system of concepts, um, like one can find in Ashari Shiism and Ismaili traditions, this is also promoting the importance of the soteriological 
benefits of relying on such a type of sovereignty or authority. So yes, it's um, in a way it gives me some thoughts about what Hussein was mentioning as well. If I can ask a question. Go ahead. So you know, we kind of think about the, the ultimate kill of it. And what about Sufi messianism in, in this time period in what later becomes the Ottoman domain? How did the, the religious scholars respond to messianic Sufi claims? Do you have one particular example that you can share? And I will read more for sure. Yeah, thank you very much. That's a very good question, actually. I would say messianism was already well manifested and embedded in sophistic uh, thought uh, in general. Uh, but it all depended on how messianism was articulated. If it was articulated as part of saintly miracles, which does not interfere with worldly affairs per se, it was tolerated by political rulers or simply accepted if the Sufi sheikhs were so powerful. But in the case of Bedreddin, it wasn't tolerated uh, and he was executed. In the 16th century, we have a number of uh, actually al-Hurufis, for example, in the 15th century with similar ideas. Uh, you know, the famous Nesimi, he was skinned alive to death. But the better known examples are in the 16th century when the empire was consolidated and there were more there was more anxiety because of the Safavid threat. Olan Sheikh, the Halwiti Sheikh, for example, in the early uh, decades of the 16th century, who claimed to be Mehdi, actually, outwardly, and asked all others uh, to acknowledge his proper authority. And he was executed for that. But despite political executions, uh, these were considered as a problem of order not a problem of spiritual deviation. All these executed sheikhs were, all of them, uh, rehabilitated in later biographical dictionaries written even by Ottoman ulama. They were mostly depicted as moments of ecstasy. Uh, Bedreddin executed by the Ottomans, but in later Ottoman sources, he was considered as a great sheikh. His Varidat is one of the most commented upon texts among Ottoman readers. So if there is an outward manifestation of messianism that is considered as a threat uh, to the order, execution is not far from. But even after the execution, uh, they were incorporated and accepted uh, into the mainstream of spirituality. Thank you. Uh, Osama, I know we have a question from Iftikhar Malik, which I will read out, but Osama, do you have something to ask? Oh, I, I don't mind asking, um, if it's all right. I, this was for Lisa, actually. And I mean, just a fascinating sort of portrait of a very complex scholar, but I'm and, and a scholar I'm thoroughly unfamiliar with, so I've learned a great deal. But for me, what's very interesting, uh, just sort of as someone with a, uh, an abiding interest in intellectual history of the Islamic world writ large, is that you're looking at a relatively early period uh, within the Fatimid uh, Caliphate and within Islamic history, as it were. And this is before Ibn Arabi, it's before Ghazali, really, it's before Ibn Sina. And I'm just thinking that the trajectories that uh, Hussein is talking about 
really require all of those characters and it goes and, and you know you have this efflorescence within obviously neoplatonic thought with uh, Avicenna's great sort of intellectual intervention and I wonder um, in particular sort of uh, and, and then Avicenna goes to Ibn Arabi and suddenly Sufism is sort of <laughs> neoplatonic but Sigisthani was a neoplatonist that was the philosophical discourse of the time and you know Plotinus uh, as people like Mark Cedric have illustrated uh, is this ever-present figure in that era um, for hundreds of years and I, I just wanted to speculate or ask you to speculate as it were like what sort of um, pathways would have been possible if Sigisthani <laughs> I mean Sigisthani is this early figure and he's not supported by a successful state in the way that Ghazali or Ibn Arabi can kind of be incorporated into various states. And in a sense, Avicenna is someone who's incorporated within Sunnism completely through these kinds of figures. Is Sigisthani's afterlife, what's his afterlife like? And what were his possibilities like? As it great. Were? It's a great question. And to, to create a, an outline, a very brief outline, and we think about certain core texts that were so influential on Muslim thinkers from the late ninth century onward. We think about certain texts that were translated into Arabic. For example, the so-called theology of Aristotle, which is a very important source text, if I can use that expression, for a genealogy of intellectuals from Ibn Sina up to, to Mola Sadra. And so with, with careful text work um, that some scholars have done, so for example, like Herman Landolt and Daniel Desmet, we can see how particular texts and concepts were framed by, by thinkers like Farabi, Ibn Sina, Sajistani, Kirmani, and then how they have their echoes in, in the works of, of later authors and thinkers. So for, for certain ideas, like going back to this idea of soul, and this is something that everyone feels the need to return to time and time again. For me, sometimes even on a daily basis, I think like, what is actually my concept of soul? Like what is, what is the nature of resurrection? So we can see that, that intellectual legacy carrying forward in terms of the work that I did in my book and then thinking about it afterwards, and this is something that I've thought about very specifically in the context of teaching Islamic studies and teaching undergraduate courses and graduate courses. So there's this particular framing of this concept of walaya that begins with Hakim Tirmidhi and which we see up until the 20th century and thereafter, in terms of thinking about what, what does this entail? What is the scope of Walaya? And so we can see that in terms of like Ismaili thinkers, like Sijistani, he's not mentioning it specifically, he's not using the term, but he has, he has an idea. And there's a lot of evidence that points that these early Ismaili authors who may have not been so comfortable with the Fatimids, um, had an understanding of something like this, the scope of Walaya that embodies so much of political, esoteric, religious, spiritual guidance, but is also 
framing and understanding of temporality as well as spirituality. Yeah, so that's that's where I see Sajastani in his own way contributing through a kind of like negative discourse by not saying certain things uh, to this this idea of like, what would that be like? And who would be involved in it in each kind of temporal setting? I hope that that helps. I mean, I think if we look more like specifically at like the texts, um, Sajistani and other Ismaili authors, I think there's there's a suggestion that there's, you know, very specific arguments that then appear later in like, for example, the, the school of Isfahan and Mullah Sajra's works to, to again, kind of put some kind of context on the scope of, of Walaya. Thank you. Thanks very much. So in good Ismaili fashion, he has been rendered into a secretive influence. So we have a question for the both of you, actually, from Iftikhar Malik, for both the speakers. Even before the Ottoman experience, the hierarchical relationship between the Caliphate and Amarat became obvious in the case of Mahmud of Ghazna, who for the first time adopted the title of a Sultan in Southwest Asia. Whatever the reason, Mahmud came down harshly on Ismailis of the Indus regions with Multan as their center, partly to please the Abbasid Caliph, uh, along with seeking legitimacy for his rule. Earlier, the weekly khutbah was dedicated to the Fatimid Caliphs in this part of India. So would either or both of you care to comment on that? Well, if I may, one of the interesting things that we learned from the history of Muslim societies and Islamic historiography regards competing authorities and reconciliations and reaching out individual dynastic powers to legitimize themselves through through the caliphate. And while I don't know the specifics of the sources for Multan and regarding Mahmoud of Ghazna, when we look at, for example, the 10 hundreds, <laughs> the early 11 hundreds, uh, so we can, we can see a lot of conflicting authorities of what is um, to be understood as the, the legitimacy of, of rule. So this, this, again, I think is one of the reasons why in the mid-11th century, in the, the Fatimid domain, there was such an importance on presenting something that was very consolidated in terms of what they were as, as a caliphate, as an imamate, as an empire. Obviously, I can say a few things. Yeah, it was not sustainable, I would say. <laughs> Thank you. I can say a few more things on top of your elaboration. As you pointed, I think the key here is multiple authorities uh, or competing, conflicting, or even synergic authorities in Muslim context or Islamic context. Still, so uh, we always had multiple authorities at work, some in clash with each other, some in symbiosis with each other. And the best displayed by the Sufi temporal confrontations. And here, I would like to give a few examples to uh, show the complexity of the situation. One is the Baba Ilyas uprising during the Seljuk times. And Baba Ilyas has a very elaborate hagiography written by his grandson, which says in which one of 
the cases, Babaida says, I have 400 caliphs who have 400 soldiers. Uh, so from Baba Ilyas's perspective, he was already ruling that area, regardless of the presence of Seljuk Sultan. And his followers had that firm faith that their sheikh has full power, actually worldly power too. So the, we have two different sovereignties at work here. And then we also know from actual historical events, uh, Baba Ilyas's son, uh, Muhlis Pasha, actually again, uprised against the Seljuks, defeated uh, the Seljuk Sultan, sat on Seljuk throne for a very short while, and then went to his village in Chorum and died there. But his claim was that I have the authority, but I, don't, I won't act as a temporal ruler. I will just uh, receive to my village. Still, his believers uh, thought that he had that power. In the case of the Abbasid Caliph's relationship with others, we, in that case, we are talking about an imperial order. Uh, and we have to distinguish here the sovereign, actual sovereign title, de jure sovereign title, and then all sorts of other titles uh, which up for grab for legitimacy, uh, right? And I think in the Abbasid context, the one title which is what was not up for negotiation was Amir al-Mu'minin, not caliph, not imam. Even in late Abbasid period, we know a number of other petty rulers here and there used the title of caliphate. And we know the Umayyads were already using the title of caliphate. The Fatimids were already using the caliphate. So the, the existence of single imam in the world was redundant uh, or rendered dysfunctional. Uh, it was largely a myth in the 10th uh, century, perhaps developed by the uh, jurists to, to reclaim Abbasid uh, suzerainty over the others. But we don't see other rulers claiming Amir al-Mu'minin, the ones under the Abbasid authority, the Buwayhids, uh, the Ghaznavids, even the Seljukids, were not. We have one exception, though, and that is, I don't know how juristically resolved, Mawardi, perhaps he should be read more critically and carefully. Turul Bey, as you well know, by sheer power, he invades Baghdad and puts his name next to Caleb. He adopts a new title. He says, Qasim Emir al-Mu'minin, the partner. So Abbasid of uh, worldly temporal authority became dual in that brief period. Other than that, all the other sultans, including Mahmud and others, had to get their investiture uh, from the caliph, from the Emir al-Mu'minin. But on top of that, they could use other legitimacy titles, such as Sultan Malik, Shah, etc. Great, thank you very much. Osama, shall we? Um... So it's really up to you. I mean, we, we technically could use the remaining seven minutes for a bit of the discussion, but I, I'm, I'm perfectly happy for people to wrap up. I'm very tempted, given the esteemed company, to ask a couple more questions, perhaps. Go ahead, please do. Thank you. I mean, and a fascinating uh, point about Turul Bey, because I, I wasn't aware of that. And, and that's really a, a sort of, that's a very disruptive claim pretty early on in the process of sort of copyright on Amir al-Mu'minin. Caliph, of course, is a, a complicated word. And uh, as far as I understand, Sunnis sort of interpreted the Andalusian behavior as a response to the Fatimid counter-Caliph. So there's a, I think, a report, a hadith where it says, you know, the 
if there are two caliphs, then kill the second one. But it doesn't say anything about the third. So it was they waited for the Fatimids to make that claim before <laughs> jumping on the bandwagon in Andalusia. But I guess my question, um, actually, um, I, I'm tempted to ask you both a question, and I, I'm putting you in a very invidious position because there's not enough time to really do it justice. But on the point of Sufism, which is very salient in your work, Hussein, but in a sense, um, I, I don't think of Sufis, I don't know the Fatimids well enough to know how important Sufism is there. But when you think of a, a word like Bartania, and the preoccupation with these sort of hidden meanings, you very often make an association with Sufism. And, uh, and one thinks, of course, of the tension between some like Ghazali and the Ismailis uh, of the Fatimid era. But I, I wanted to ask, is there a comparable component of Sufism uh, in any way, you know, even if it's a very minor component, to what Hussein was talking about with respect to the Sufi metaphysics really imbuing the identity of the caliphate? Uh, caliphate in the first place it, but is there something equivalent to that in in the Fatimid context and perhaps it's ended up being really a question directed to Lisa if, if <laughs> would be okay with that. So I think um, in some ways my my understanding my knowledge and my reading of historical sources has like gone elsewhere it's not present as much as it ought to be in my mind um, but I think if I'm going to paint things with very broad strokes, I think the, the 11th century is a very interesting time period for the development of intellectual traditions. So we have, for example, under the Boyids, the consolidation of Shi, Hadith, and different types of sources. And under the Fatimids, we see the consolidation of other types of texts and, and forms of knowledge uh, in a way that it almost becomes mm, like cultural capital for, for different ruling groups. And so the, the development from, I would say, the, the 10 hundreds to the 11 hundreds up until the, the time of Ghazali is really delving into these different textual traditions and in a way developing some sort of epistemology that will lend itself practically as well as theoretically. And so I think um, the Fatimids in the 11th century were using a lot of cultural capital from Ethnoshirishism, as well as other thought traditions like Sufism, to recast the scope of temporal as well as spiritual authority as well, and, and knowledge. And you can go so many places once you've done that. And I think that's what makes it so fascinating in a way for, for me as a, as a scholar to kind of have opportunities to, to move back and forth. Working with a concept like Gulaya, we can go pretty far on the, the super expressway of, you know, Islamic textual traditions. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. So I'll leave it, uh, Osama, to you to close, but I just want to remind 
all our participants today and audience that our next session will be on the 26th of January at the same time, and it will be dedicated to the theme of religion, specifically in Saudi Arabia. So we're moving to the modern period, and our two speakers will be Madawi Al-Rashid from the LSC and Pascal Menaret from Brandeis University. So uh, we very much hope you can join us for that. And now on to Osama to thank our two wonderful speakers. Thank you very much. I'll just add, please do remember to register for the Zoom a link to be sent to you in time. But really, it's been a, a wonderful uh, evening with the two of you. Of course, where you are, it's probably the morning. <laughs> and thank you for making the time. We've learned a great deal from you. And I, I hope this is an opportunity also for you know people to learn more about your work. And please do try and get your hands on their books, their sort of really representative of the cutting edge of studies of the caliphate in, in the Islamic historical tradition and uh, spread across two different periods of time. So I, I just want to close by thanking both Lisa and Hussein for a, a wonderful evening, an enlightening one. And we look forward to having you at some point over in person at Oxford as well. Thank you. Thank you so Thank much. You.